Father, how deep is your love for us? <clears throat> how vast, how, how deep, how wide. We cannot comprehend it. We can't uh, understand it. We don't know why you do, Lord, but you love us. So we, we are so thankful this morning you've given us breath to be here. We just pray that all that goes on and continues to go on, Lord, will bring glory as we sing more, open your word, read your word. Lord, you are a great God. <clears throat> we are unworthy in all ways, and yet you have chosen to reach down and on the cross save us. And we thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I'm sorry, first let me give some disclaimers. I got a cold. My lovely wife gave it to me two weeks ago. <clears throat> so if I cough, I apologize. Uh, some other disclaimers. If you're a visitor today, you picked the wrong day to visit Calvary. <clears throat> uh, I'm not Paul Thompson. I'm better looking, but I'm not Paul Thompson. <laughs> I did leave him last night in Huntsville. I had hoped to pay a joke on him. When he asked me to come to preach today, it was months ago, I'm sure he assumed we were not going to the uh, Mills Green Wedding, but we've gotten to know, I have and Lee has, Alan and Laura at Respite, and um, they're just a delightful couple, and they want us to come, and we wanted to go. So I planned to sort of sneak in without Paul to see me and get him all nervous why I would be there and not here. But we were there, and I felt somebody tap me on the shoulder, and he said, what are you doing here? <laughs> I said, I'm dedicated. You know, so um, I... Uh, I will tell you that I don't take standing here, and it's not Paul Thompson's pulpit, but really it is. Uh, it's a humbling privilege, and uh, I am humbled indeed to be here. Uh, I know Paul doesn't normally tell jokes or stories, but I got one. that I, It's exactly the way I feel. And does any of y'all remember Jerry Clower? Okay. Jerry Clower tells an interesting story, and I identify so well with it this morning. Uh, it seems that oil company had hired this brilliant professor, uh, hired him to go around and speak at universities. And uh, so they did, and he did, and they got a, a chauffeur, driver, and a limousine to take him from place to place. So he was speaking at all these schools, <clears throat> did it for a long time, and one day the chauffeur was driving along, and he says, Professor, I can't talk like Jerry Carl. Professor, I think I could give that speech just as good as you give it. And so he said, uh, well, if you think so, let's pull over. The people I'm going to, the school I'm going to, they don't know me, they don't know what I look like. We'll change clothes. I'll be the chauffeur, and you'll be the professor. Said, All right, let's do it. So they did. They went in to the school. The uh, limo driver, acting as a professor, gave the speech. It was fantastic. They kept having standing ovations and standing ovations. The president of the school came forward and finally quieted everybody down. He said, well, I'm glad you all enjoyed that, and we finished a little bit early, so we have some time for some questions. And the limo driver was a little nervous, <clears throat> but a little guy in the back got up and said, Professor, what if a mouse hundreds of years ago died, and over those years, Layers and layers of sediment laid on top of that mouse. And then here, centuries later, one of our oil bits hits that mouse. What would be the pH of the soil immediately around that mouse? So the 
limo driver up front <clears throat> looked, didn't say anything. He finally said, that is the dumbest, stupidest question I have ever heard. It is so dumb, I'm going to let my chauffeur driver in the back answer it. <laughs> I am the chauffeur driver this morning. Uh, I hope y'all do. I, I'm not trying to take fun, make fun for off Paul, because you know, uh, if you've been at Calvary long, you probably realize he's probably one of the greatest Bible teachers breathing today. He really is. If you don't believe me, you could go with me. The last 20 years of our ministry, I've, I've been and I've spoken lots and lots of churches. I've heard lots and lots of pastors, and I'm an old guy, and Paul is the best. God has gifted him with clarity, the ability to really preach the gospel. And so we are blessed to have him among us. Um, he's left me today a somewhat difficult text. We'll get to it in just a minute. Uh, probably a little awkward for him to present. Me, I don't know that, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna let you have it. Uh, and I wanted to know that I would have preferred a, <clears throat> and Paul says this sometimes, if we teach, if you are a visitor, we, Paul teaches expositionally, that means we go verse by verse, book by book, <clears throat> and where we are today is where we are today. Um, and again, as he says sometimes, I would like a more inspirational, moving text but we don't have that. We have 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25 today. And so that's what we're going to do. Um, and I want to let you know my posture, my perspective as we open the word this morning. Um, I'm one of the newest elders of the church. We've been here for seven years. And so somebody may not know who I am. I may not know who you are. Um, but I, I, since I came on, I'm a few months older than Dave Lindy, so I call myself the elder elder. Uh, I displaced him as being the elder elder, but uh, we're going to apply it. I want, to, want you to think initially. We're going to look at it from not just elders, um, but elders and staff, and more particularly elders and st the staff, the first part of this passage. And, um, and I, we'll get later into, we'll start to see what this has to say for us not the elders, but for us, the church. Um, <clears throat> as we start today, consider this. Barna did a study in, like, in 2021 of pastors to see where they stood and what they were thinking about their pastorate and their churches. Um, think about this. 42% of pastors had considered quitting full-time ministry. 42%. Answers were given such as uh, political divisions, the stress of the job, uh, unfulfilled. Their vision is different from the uh, church's vision. But this is the statistic. 21% say, I don't feel respected by my church members. The elders are extremely important to the church. John MacArthur says, <clears throat> the church's ability to be this the church's ability, ability to establish a pure, powerful testimony, to radiate God's glory, to manifest godly modeling and patterning of virtue is largely dependent on one crucial area, and that is the area of leadership. No church really rises higher than its leadership. I said earlier we'll talk about this as it relates to our staff, 
primarily. <clears throat> but it applies to all of us. And we'll get into that a little bit later. The text today, if you'll look on the screen, fairly straightforward. It's refining the process of elders and the role of elders and our role to the elders of the church. Read with me. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25. <clears throat> Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink, only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not contained with, cannot remain hidden. <clears throat> the first verse uh, really talks about financial support. The word honor, we talked about this last week, Paul did, with widows. It really relates to financial, material, physical support. And uh, <clears throat> it's important to note, and I think this is sort of the implication is, it says that those elders who rule well, they do double honor. And it really, the implication again is that even if they don't rule well, they still do honor. Positionally, we are to respect our elders, our staff. Again, I'm not talking about me so much now as I'm talking about Pastor Paul and the entire staff. I will say this. <clears throat> Here at Calvary, we play our staff well, and we should. Um, and they are deserving. And so it does say that. There's two words in there that sometimes would cause us to <clears throat> trip us up maybe. One is rule, and the other one is honor. Talk about rule now, and I'll talk about honor in a minute. But it really just means to set in place. It means a position. Uh, it also has the connotation of being protector and the guardian. Uh, the NIV, I think, says direct the affairs. I'm not sure what yours say. Other translations, translations say lead well. But that's what the elders are supposed to do, is to lead well, direct the church. Um, and it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, it tells us again what, how our response should be to the elders. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Again, honor specifically means here financial compensation for doing the work. And then it continues on in the next verse which somewhat could be cryptic to us in our culture because we're not around oxen a lot. Um, but it says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. <clears throat> the people hearing that for the first time would know exactly what it meant. And all it meant is they would have oxen and walking in circles and grinding the grain that the oxen could eat 
what's on the floor. They, they deserve that. And it's, it's, not, it's not as complicated as we want to think. Uh, they were doing that in, in Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 4. Uh, especially, it's talking about this, and it mentions this at, quote, verse 18 is, a, is Deuteronomy 25, 4. This example, again, not so understandable to us, but perfectly understanding to them, is that work, particularly our work, our, our staff's work, for the Lord, here, they deserve to be paid. Then it gets a little sticky. <clears throat> Verse 19 talks about bringing a charge against an elder. And this is actually a protection for the elders because it specifies the, and it talks about the process of bringing in Matthew 18. And as we would contemplate something as serious as bringing a charge against an elder, be it the staff member or lay elders, <clears throat> we'd have to think about the seriousness of that charge, how um, it could impact the church and would impact the church. Uh, you need, you just look online, read newspapers of so many pastors who have fallen uh, and its effect on not just that church, not just that ministry, but the name of Christ all over. It gives people who are not Christians ammunition. See, I told you so. Those Christians are hypocrites and and, and there's been several high-profile cases against those. It also talks about not just the seriousness of the charge, but it goes on in verse 20 and says, Those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Regardless of the repercussions of doing such a thing, <clears throat> this is a commandment to us. Regardless of what we think is going to happen, we are told to do it. But we're told to do it in a certain way. And that's Matthew 18. As Christians, we know, we know that passage because that's what we should be doing to other Christians. It's the process for a grievance that we have with somebody. We don't just spread rumors. We go to that person. Um, it's, uh, I'll read it, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to them, Listen even to the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile. Again, this is for all of us, but particularly given the seriousness and impact it can have on the body, our local body. We must prayerfully consider that. We also need to look at the <clears throat> purpose of the process. We follow Matthew 18. <clears throat> Hopefully, if the need or ever arises to bring a charge against an elder. We follow that, and hopefully it's reconciled. But what is the purpose? And it says so in the verse. It's a deterrent to others, a deterrent. This is true about penalties of any case in our justice system. That's the reason that we do that, is as a deterrent to others. Matthew Henry says, public rebuke is designed for the good of others that they may fear 
as well as for the good of the party rebuked, since it was ordered under the law that public offenders should receive public punishment, that all Israel might hear and fear and do no more wickedly. But we don't do that hastily. We don't do it vengefully. We always, always would do that in love with the goal of restoration. Not vengeance, not retribution. <clears throat> and we've all heard church about churches who members of a small number of members who don't like the pastor and they just they start and they get fighting and fighting and fighting and then the church splits. It happens all too frequently. But we, by the name called by the name of Christ, we should always do this in love and according to the process and always with a goal. Anytime we do church uh, discipline, always the goal is restoration. Never to embarrass, but it's restoration. There's also the necessity to follow the biblical process. The necessity of persevering, of perseverance. Not following through has worse effects for the body. We cannot, as responsible Christians, if we know something is going on, remain silent. Regardless of what we think may happen, we do it because the Word tells us to. Which leads us to the other, the next few verses, which in telling us to be diligent about how we identify and choose elders. It says, not be quick, to be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. <clears throat> Again, a little bit hard to understand when you read that, but particularly it's telling us <clears throat> need for an unhurried, deliberate, methodical, and thorough consideration of men to be elders. We hear this all the time, you see it all the time, where a, a celebrity in some venue professes Christ, and the next thing we see is he's delivering a message somewhere, or he has a church. This, this passage is saying that's not good. We don't want to be quick doing that. Brad Larson, the noted ecclesiology pastor, says, <clears throat> planting a church without healthy elders it's like stepping on the gas pedal while throwing the steering wheel out of the window. That's really true. It's really true. So we have to be diligent. And then it says, <clears throat> not taking part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. There's a significance of laying hands. We do that now a lot in churches today. Traditionally, that's done as a blessing. We're laying hands on. We're identifying. It signifies our identifying with that person. The problem is, <clears throat> all through the Old Testament, if you remember what the priest would do to the sacrifice before he sacrificed, he would lay his hands on the sacrifice. He would be transferring the sins of the people, or his own, to that sacrifice. So in a sense, when we identify with an elder, again, the <clears throat> it's telling us to not be hasty in choosing, so that when we're laying hands on the elder and identifying with them, that if we're that elder were to depart from the faith or do something, we've identified with that as well. So it's a blessing and a curse. 
And it's also done with the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's done only with the power of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 1.6 says, Fan into flame the gift of God, which is the Holy Spirit, which is in you through the laying on of hands. So we need to do it diligently and slowly. The next verse, to me, if you read this on, you just read it, just reading through the Bible, you're reading through the Bible, you would think, what is this doing here? What, in the, what is Paul talking about? And he says, it's in parentheses, I don't know if this is in your Bible, King James it is, it's a parentheses. It says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. <clears throat> We're here dealing with some heady subjects, and all of a sudden Paul writes this to Timothy. You think, why, why did he do that? Why here? Why not at the end? Why not at the beginning? There's <clears throat> a couple of things to me. Once again, it underscores the validity and the honesty and the authenticity of Scripture. You know, if I were writing or you're writing, we'd say, let's don't put that in. That's not, that doesn't sound so good. You know, why would you be saying that in particular here? But I think Paul had something else in mind. I think it's a warning against legalism. If we were to go through this process we're talking about and being diligent and being very slow in examining people to become elders, men to become elders, uh, it would be you'd quickly get into a box checking kind of thing. And I think Paul is telling us here to don't be legalistic about that. And he's telling us to remember grace when we're dealing with this kind of thing. And the reason for taking time and identifying elders, he says in the last two verses, which we can take somewhat together, is <clears throat> some men's sins and good works are both obvious and some are obscure. He says in 24 that, again, the sins of some people are conspicuous. We see them going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. The reason, again, for a very slow process of choosing elders, so some of these things will come out. And just, as, just the same in verse 25, it says, also good works are also conspicuous for some, but others can't remain hidden. We see this all the time, and you see it. I've done a lot of marriage counseling, and you're telling people to have a longer engagement. So you get to really see the person in different kinds of situations. The same thing is true here. You want to see a person, how they handle stress, how they handle criticism, how they handle a lot of different things. But that takes time. It takes a little bit of time. He's just warning, warning us that. <clears throat> I think there's an overriding, <clears throat> we're not going home yet, even though we're through with the passage, because we're not through with it. There's an underlying theme in all of this I think it's embedded in the word, the first word, and it's honor. <clears throat> we are commanded many times in Scripture to honor. <clears throat> Obviously, first God, we're to honor God. First Timothy, I won't read all of these. Um, first Timothy 1.17 
to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. We're told to honor our parents. Honor your father and mother in the Ten Commandments. We're told to honor kings and rulers and government. First Peter 2.17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. We're obviously told to honor the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, we know that all scripture is God-breathed <coughs> and profitable for teaching. Last week, we talked about honoring widows. We are to honor widows. And at Calvary, we, we try to do that. I think we are honoring our widows. Masters. Next week, Paul talked 1 Timothy 6.1, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Obviously, we're told to do that in marriage, as I mentioned earlier. Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. Each talks about honor, but all in different aspects. I think in our culture, what does honor mean? <clears throat> I think traditionally it just means remembering something. <clears throat> um, we honor uh, you know, we have insignias that you see on baseball players, football players, somebody dies. We honor that person by putting their initials or, you know, we honor our veterans with Veterans Day. Or, but all those things, unfortunately, secularly, don't have the meaning that authentic biblical honor means. I think it means <clears throat> to the world, again, uh, giving some deference, but more importantly, just remembering and you think about who in our culture deserves honor. <clears throat> we honor officials. I always laugh when I go into, we're talking about special needs a lot, going into uh, <clears throat> cities that lots of times they think they can change the culture of the city, the crime of the city, to go in and rename all the streets. Always get a kick out of that, like that's going to really help. Um, we honor celebrities. We're very quick to honor people in our culture with the context of remembering them. Typically, how do we do that? We erect statues sometimes. We name things after them. We dedicate things to them. You think this is what Paul means here? I don't. Because he's talking about something that is much, much deeper for us as believers. Back to our text for just a moment. Why do elders even deserve honor? <clears throat> Why? This is particularly true for our staff. And it's particularly true for all the pastors. particularly true for Paul. They must bear God-given responsibility as shepherd and set direction for the body. It requires much prayer. It's very stress-inducing. It requires a lot of time. And then you must still do it with purity Integrity, fairness, honesty, transparency. When we think about our staff, again, particularly Paul and our pastors, we need to remember the stress that all of these things can induce. The time they spend in preparation, the time they spend in prayer. And they're worthy of our honor. Consider this. <clears throat> As I was studying this, 
As believers, <clears throat> we can equate the command to honor, to with, to humble ourselves before or submit to. That may be, for some of you, that's going to be a little bit of extension for you. But that's what the Bible really talks about. <clears throat> for you see, <clears throat> for a Christian, for one who has been saved, honoring is an attitude that's reflected in action. Most of the things that we do in this world when we honor people requires nothing of us. The 4th of July, we just have fun. We, we equate in secular honor and celebrate. Honor and celebrate. Scripture is honor and to humble ourselves, submit to. This is best exemplified by Jesus, as all things are. If you remember in the upper room, in John 13, 4 through 5, Jesus rose from supper. <clears throat> he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around the waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Do you ever think about that? <clears throat> he was preparing to go to the cross. He was trying to speak the most important things on his heart. We see those in John 15 through 17 to his disciples. And yet, what did Jesus do? He humbled himself before these men who still didn't get it. Humbled himself in a really base way to wash their feet. How can we see the creator of the universe doing this to a bunch of ragtag guys in a room who really didn't grasp it? How do we excuse ourselves when we don't exemplify the same kind of submission or humility or meekness? I have a question for you. <clears throat> I know I do. Have you ever met someone that makes you feel like you're the most important person in the world? I have. I've met people like that, and I just... I've tried to examine why. Why, does, why do I like being with this person so much? And um, I'm sure you have too, more than one. I'll tell you this, in my case, you may be different. I'm not drawn to them by their looks or their stories or their resume, um, their success. I'm drawn, I'm drawn to them in reality because of their humility. <clears throat> they are more interested in me than themselves. That is a godly character trait. We're going to talk about more this morning that we need to emulate as believers. So some questions. What does biblical honor not look like? Or we can call that dishonoring. I've just got a few things down here. First thing it is disingenuous. It's insincere. Lots of times it's flattery. But regardless of what it is, it's superficial support or endorsement. I can tell if somebody says something to me. <clears throat> I know you can too, whether it's sincere or not. Um, there's a disconnect between what they're saying in their actions. But what does biblical honor look like? What does it look like? Why is it different? I mean, it says we have to honor, and we get past the, the physical and the financial. What do we do when we say we're honoring 
someone. First thing is, it's prayerful. We can't say that we love you as my brother or sister in Christ. We don't pray for you. We can, but that doesn't make it very genuine. How many times have you, somebody, you heard a prayer request, and the first words out of your mouth is, I'll pray for you. And then a week later, you remember, you know, I didn't pray for that. I didn't pray about that. So I think it's an implication that we should be praying more for each other. This is sincere. It's value. It shows respect and courage. It compliments, um, particularly for our elders, our staff. It's acknowledging the responsibility and work that they do. Acknowledging it, not just giving lip service to it. One of the things we do is honor is more action. We stop gossip and rumors that start circulating. We're quick to overlook mistakes. We don't have unrealistic expectations or standards that we're holding someone to, our staff. It's trusting them, giving them the benefit of the doubt. And it's always forgiving. Again, our best example is Jesus himself. Philippians 2.8, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Let that sink in. We just got through Easter. But just think for a minute. <clears throat> Jesus owed us nothing. And he went to the cross to die for us, to give us everything. I know Paul has been talking a lot about the fallacy of two-tiered Christians. That some people do these things and some people say, I don't have to do that. I do this here. That's a fallacy. It's, uh, it's uh, I think it's a, um, something from Satan. To just think, well, you, just, you don't need to do it. You don't need to fully obey. You need to partially obey. You can choose. The, the Bible is a cafeteria. You can pick things that you want to do. Well, we can't. God commands. We obey or we disobey. It's as simple as that. I think that begs the question, why is it so hard to biblically honor? What gets in our way? Why can't we biblically honor? Can I offer two? I'll just offer two. <clears throat> the first and probably it's definitely related to the second. <clears throat> but the first one is we failed to acknowledge or at least minimize our human sinfulness and reluctance to submit, which in a word is pride. James 4, 6, but it gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. <clears throat> In Romans 6, it basically said, Paul is saying, did you not know that you died in baptism with Jesus? In other words, if we name the name of Christ here today, we're alive. If we don't, according to the scripture, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. So 
in that context of saying that we just we don't acknowledge things and is that we forget who we are and who God is. Kent Hughes says a taste of righteousness can be easily perverted into an overwhelming sense of self-righteousness and judgmentalism. Let me stop here. <clears throat> some of this may be easy for some of you who God has gifted you um, human terms, a certain a meek spirit or nature. But that's not what I'm talking about here. For me, maybe you, I'm naturally a prideful person. I just am. I am. I look at people. I evaluate. Um, and I can't, I can't be that way. I'm told I just can't be that way. It affects so many things as people look at me. I look at them. And the second thing is the result of the first one is disobedience. I just don't, I choose not to obey that. Um, I'm just not going to do that. We think we can choose what we want to, but we can't. When Samuel was talking to Saul after he had taken the spoils, when he was told not to, he says in 1 Samuel 15, 22, and Samuel said, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen to the fat of rams. Jesus wants our obedience. He doesn't want us to try to bargain with him and say, I know I didn't do that, but I'm going to do this twice. He doesn't say that. When he makes the commandment, we're to do it. In fact, <clears throat> Paul, and I want to read this passage because it's so good. In Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, <clears throat> Paul concisely describes the conduct and mindset of a Christian that we should adopt. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And he starts, and be not drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us a number of things. To walk circumspectly. To redeem the time. And as those of us are getting older, that redeeming the time becomes more and more meaningful to me. Uh, redeeming the time. To live soberly. Give joyfully. And he also tells us to give thanks in all things. He says that, Paul says that many times in the New Testament in his letters. But really... What we're talking about here is submission to each other. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now we know that Paul is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. And he was talking to Christians. But it's not limited to Christians. It's limited to Christians in the sense of who should do this who should be submitting, but not to who we're submitting to. It's not just husbands to wives. It's not just servants to masters. It's not just common to royalty. But as Christians, we are to be submissive to everyone. That doesn't mean that we're weak. That doesn't mean that we're timid. 
It just means that we are honoring them. We submit to them. <clears throat> Jesus is called by many names in Scripture. Bread, the gate, water, lamb. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our mind when we think of God is probably the most important thing about us. So we think of all kinds of adjectives. <clears throat> but in a wonderful book by Dana Ortland, he talks about the fact that Jesus really only describes himself once. Not names himself, but describes himself. He does that in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <clears throat> Did you get what he the two words he used to describe himself? Gentle and lowly. The creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, has described himself as gentle and lowly. Just the way we should be. A quick check <clears throat> I've started to try to do with myself to see whether I really have that sense of meekness or submission to people that I meet or come across when I engage them. Um, this is it. If my schedule is more important than theirs, I'm not doing it. Or my concerns are more important than theirs, I'm not doing it. If my words are more important than theirs, I'm not doing it. If my time is more important than theirs, I'm not honoring them. And it gets down to the bottom. Again, maybe me, may not be you. <clears throat> but I make a judgment, sinfully so, that I just make, they're not worthy of my time. They're not worthy of me spending, not worthy of my attention. Why do we need honor? Who needs honor? I don't know if you all remember the book, The Five Love Languages. Anybody remember that? Great book, great marriage book. When I read that in my pride, I said, you know, I really don't need any of that. You know, I know Lee loves me. I know she loves me. I don't really need it until I realized and I thought about it a little bit more. And I, I really do. I really do. We all do. We do need to be loved and to be recognized. Except, kicker for the day is that God doesn't need it. He tells us to honor him, but he doesn't need it. He's going to be God whether we honor him or not. God needs nothing from us. Which gets to just the whole point of my message today for you. There's another reason. <clears throat> Consider this. <clears throat> when you read scripture, particularly the, the, if you have a Bible with Jesus' words in red, everything in it, it was written, yes, for, to record history, it was written as devotion to us to tell us what happened. But everything that's written is for our own good. It's for our good. Now think about that, okay? When Jesus told us to honor someone or do things, submit to each other, is that because that person needs it? No. They may need it. They may not. It may be prideful like me. 
But he tells us to do it. And the reason that he wants them to do it is because it's good for us to humble ourselves before people. It's so hard to do that. <clears throat> With my, my kids, particularly my grandkids, dealing with teenage boys, hard. But I tell, you know, I want them to honor me as their granddad, not for me, for them. I want them to honor. I want them to have an attitude of respect. It's not going to make me or break me, but that attitude, that heart condition of them will make or break them. He does it. He says it all. Everything he says, illustrated with anytime you want to look in Scripture. You think about the woman with the issue of blood who came, Jesus was in a big crowd, and she touches the hem. And what does he do? He says, who touched me? And the disciples are saying, what do you mean, who touched you? There's hundreds of people around here. Jesus had a lesson. <clears throat> he turned to the, old, to, to, the, to the woman and dealt with her and her sin. He did that because he wanted us to understand in that case that we should take time for people. Um, he's on the cross. All the words he uttered were for us, corporately as the body of Christ and individually, for us to understand that. If you're here this morning, <clears throat> Probably some of the things I said, or I've said, sound crazy. They, they sound illogical. And into an unsafe heart, an unsafe mind, they are. But if you're thinking about it this morning, as we close, consider what I said. Consider the greatness of a God who would give himself to save us from himself. He's calling you today as he calls us all if we know him in salvation to grow closer to him. If you don't know him, if you haven't asked for forgiveness of your sins and repented, I ask today that you do that. If you are a believer and here this morning and you like me can say, you know, I look at people and I make snap judgments. Um, I don't consider the Maybe they need a word of encouragement today. Maybe they need my attention. Maybe they need a smile from me. We were at Dollywood this week for a day, with our, this week with our grandkids, and I did some serious people watching. And I did some serious judgment. You know, and, and as I sat there, I thought, you know, Dave, you're going to go preach on this subject. What in the world are you doing? And I was, I was just sitting there. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <clears throat> that is so wrong. I saw so many young people who are just trying to have some identity in different ways that they try to get some attention. And I think, what if a godly man, old man, they just said something to him or smiled at him or didn't have an accusatory kind of look? I saw people just, we never know what people are going through, the hurt. <clears throat> the question is, are we willing to 
put away our pride and to take time to give them time. When we do that, we show the love of Christ. We honor people when we give them our attention and we give them our time and our concern. We're just too busy to do it too many times. We have to get outside of our comfort zones. In fact, in our, some of you know, we, we have a ministry we're around and we're starting to slow down now with age. <clears throat> but dealing with special needs in churches, um, I've learned a lot of things. Learned a lot of things. I want to share some with you just because it's so important. And it's the passage in 1 Corinthians <clears throat> that says something. Or listen to what it says. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. As we talked about this morning, this isn't a switch we throw to become, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more sensitive to people. I'm going to be more humble. I'm going to honor people biblically. I'm going to honor elders biblically. I'm going to think about our staff in different ways. It's not a switch. It's part of the sanctification process if you're a believer. It is a process. You don't do as good and then you do better. Then you, then you go back and you do better and you do better. It's a process. But what I've learned <clears throat> dealing with people in our culture we call special needs is that, <clears throat> and we've been doing this for 20 years, what, all, what I loved about it, what I still love about it is what I learned. But dealing with special needs people, I don't have to, we have some here today, I don't have to go to them by the way our culture treats them, even the church in many cases. They, you don't have to tell them that they're, that they're foolish, they're not smart. You don't have to tell them that they're weak and not strong. You don't have to tell them they're of noble birth. They get it. They sense that themselves. Oh, that we could do that that we could humble ourselves in such a way that we don't think we're wise. We don't think we're strong. We don't think we're noble. Because he only calls the ones who reckon themselves weak and foolish and I'm not a noble word. So for sanctification and to call us, to draw us, is dependent on us in a sense that we just have to put away things in our lives so that we do reckon ourselves a certain way. And that way is foolish, not wise, weak, not strong, low and despised, not noble. When we have that mindset, when we understand who God is, and since we're already dead, we need to reach out to others. We'll not make an impact on this world as Christians until we approach people as, you know, the old saying, the adage, a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We don't go into them and try to explain doctrine to them when we first meet them. 
We do it from a sense of meekness, humility. We truly, truly honor them, give them respect, because Jesus said so. And it's for them, but mostly it's for us as believers. Pray with me. Lord, our prayer this morning is simple. We just pray that for those of us who know you, that you would help us welcome conviction as we fail you. That you would draw us ever closer to yourself through whatever means you think are correct and right and what we need. Help us to see where we fail you. Help us desire your your sanctifying work in us. Open our eyes to who we are and who you are. When we think too lowly of you and too highly of ourselves, help us to see all people as people you sacrificed your life for. Help us see them just as you do. In light of our sinfulness and pride, you paid to redeem us. Help us have the attitude, the posture of submission to you first and everyone in our path. Lord, we are truly all equal at the foot of the cross. But too many times, just like Paul, we live like we think we are the chief of the sinners. Again, if we are here today and belong to you, help us realize how unbelievably blessed we are to know you. The fact that you care for us and you're concerned with those who don't know you yet. Lord, help us to be your ambassadors. Help us to be lovingly, humbly submissive. Help us to submit ourselves to everyone we come in contact with because that's how we'll touch them with you. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Again, we don't understand it. We can't comprehend it. But by faith, we accept it and enjoy it as the true life it gives us today. We acknowledge you today as our King, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.